you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7 will be in verses 7 through 12. Uh, and as you do that, let me say thank you on behalf of Andrea and myself and our whole family for the shower yesterday, the Zoom shower. Uh, it was really encouraging. Um, thank you for the the financial gift, and even more so, and I, I mean this, I'm not saying that um, that I, I appreciate the money. Thank you. But thank you so much more for the blessings and for those of you that took time to think through those and bless our family. Um, that was a, a beautiful gift. So thank you very much. With that said, let's look at Matthew 7, uh, 7 through 12. In a, a conversation that Andrea and I had with Mernie this week, we were talking about uh, the thought that the Sermon on the Mount is intended to, to function not as a list of rules to keep, but as a description of a way of life that leads to wholeness and flourishing. Mernie reminded me that I said that one time and said, what did you mean? And I had to think about it. So that was a good uh, keeping me in check. But it's not a list of rules to keep. It's a description of a way of life that leads to wholeness and, and flourishing. Let me say that another way. Jesus doesn't tell us what we need to do to become a part of God's kingdom or even to stay in God's kingdom, but rather what we will become because we already are a part of God's kingdom. In these chapters of Matthew, we've heard Jesus emphasize the, the fatherhood of God as he's going to, to do again in today's passage. And so we can also think of the sermon as a, a description of how children of the Heavenly Father live in this world. Uh, there's no, at least this is true for my family, I'm not sure about yours, but there's no entra entrance exam or interview that's required to be a part of our family. Um, we are Lord willing, going to welcome another baby into our family in about a month. And there's not going to be a trial period of like six months. And then after that, we're going to decide whether or not he's allowed to be a part of our family. Uh, as he grows, there's going to be expectations of him, ways we want him to speak and to act and to live as a part of our family, as someone who bears our name. But he will always be our, our son, no matter what he does or doesn't do. These words of Jesus then they don't communicate what we must do to become a member of God's family. That's accomplished through the grace of God in Christ, whereby through faith he adopts us and he makes us his children. So rather than, than being a way to earn our way into being members of this family, Jesus' teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount describes what we long to do and, and who we want to become because we are children of the Heavenly Father. He spells out how the, the grace shown to us can and will change how we speak, how we act, how we live in this world. He speaks of a, a greater righteousness that children of God, through faith in Jesus, pursue and chase after. Here in Matthew 7, uh, 7 through 12, we meet with, with more very familiar but equally powerful words from Jesus, words that, that remind us of God's goodness to his children and of the call for children of God to show a similar kindness and love to others, to pray and to love like members of God's family. Jesus says to us in these verses, this is our big idea, he says, 
confidently request the goodness of the Father and indiscriminately give his goodness to all people. Confidently request, ask for the goodness of the Father. Pray and and, and confidently request the goodness of the Father and then in turn indiscriminately give his goodness to all people. So we're thinking about praying and loving like members of God's family. Now, the logic of of this section of the Sermon on the Mount, as we said last week, is a little bit more difficult than it is in other parts. But I think that as Jesus is summing up the the core of his teaching, he's he's encouraging us to ask ask for and seek out the wisdom and the strength that we're going to need to walk in all these ways of the kingdom that he's been describing. And he also, at the end, after all of this teaching, is going to give us a summary statement of just one simple thing. If we want to keep this, this, this uh, greater righteousness of, the, righteousness of the kingdom, if we want to do that, he just gives us one sentence for how to do it. These words of our Savior in verses 7 through 12 encourage and they motiva- motivate us to pray with confidence and boldness like dearly loved children, bringing their needs and their desires to their parents. And they also open wide our hearts to others, to those in the family of God and those in the family of the world at large. In many ways, I think we are, we are encouraged towards boldness in private devotion and also in boldness in how we relate to other people, both of which find their motivation and their power in our status as children of God, loved by him. We find that our, our faith is expressed in our prayer closet and it's also expressed on the street corner. Now, some of us are more devoted to one of those than the other, or maybe we emphasize one to the detriment of the other. But as children of God, we have to do both. We have to confidently request the goodness of the Father and also indiscriminately give his goodness to all people. With that in mind, hear these words of Jesus in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 12. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you, Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he, if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Confidently request the goodness of the Father and indiscriminately give his goodness to all people. As we think on that that big idea uh, and the call to be both bold in prayer and and bold in love, let's begin in verses 7 through 11, and I want us to think on, on this, the goodness of the Father to his children the goodness of the Father to his, his children. Uh, that's going to lead into our, our second point, which is going to be the goodness of the children of the Father to all people. So we're going to get to that in verse 12. But right now, the goodness of the Father to his children. As we think about that and, and how it relates to how we pray, maybe we could start by thinking about why we don't pray. Why don't you pray? Why don't I pray? Maybe we, we doubt prayers efficacy. We, we are skeptical about whether or not prayer will work. 
we start to wonder maybe if it's a waste of our time. Another reason we might lack prayer could be that we are timid or we're fearful. Maybe we fear that our past failures are going to keep us from being heard by the Father. Or, or maybe we're afraid of, of hoping. You know, prayer is an exercise of hope and faith, and we're just kind of scared of, of hoping, scared of having faith that God might change us or change our situation because we don't want to be disappointed again when he doesn't. We could think about praying that God would strengthen us to walk in the ways of the Sermon on the Mount, and then we could be discouraged thinking that that kind of a prayer is a waste of time that will never change, that we're never going to walk in the ways that he's calling us to. As we think about why we don't pray, we could actually simplify our reasons for prayerlessness, and we could say that the reason we don't pray is because we pray like adults and not like children. The reason you and I don't pray is because we pray like adults and not like children. When we come to God, maybe we, we pray not to a father, but we pray to a boss or even just a peer. We, we come with our, our doubts and our fears, but we're also scared of how he might respond or we're doubtful of his ability to do anything. But think about a child. Children, I guess you can think about yourselves. Think about a child who is suddenly filled with a need or a desire, something that they want or that they need. Or maybe they're filled with a sense of joy. Or maybe a sense of fear overwhelms them. What do they do when that happens? Well, they call out for a parent. They, they ask for what they need. And if there's no response after a few cries, after a few asking moments, they, they get up and what do they do? They seek out their mom and dad. They go looking for them. They know what they need and they go from room to room to seek out to find the person in life that they know can and desires to help them. And if they come to a locked door, bathroom or otherwise, what do they do? They knock. Because for a child, there is not a good time or a bad time to ask for something. There is only the present. There is not an important request or an unimportant one. There's only the present need. A child's sense of the, the present not only causes them, to act, causes them to act immediately on their desires or their needs, but also persistently. They ask until they get an answer. We all know, as if you are a parent, you know that not giving an answer doesn't work. <laughs> They're going to keep asking until they get a clear one. The, the sense of these three commands in verse, verse 3, ask, seek, knock, the, the, the sense of those uh, is continual action. It's of pursuing God and his wisdom with, with persistence, the way that a child pursues his or her parents, asking, seeking, knocking continually. Verse 8 reinforces verse 7. It's, it says in a parallel way that when we ask or we seek or we knock, when we consistently and persistently come to God with our needs, that he will hear us and he will respond to us. He will give us what we ask and seek for. And the opposite is true, as stated in James 4, 2, that we don't have, why? Because we don't ask. Our, our lack in life is not due to a weakness on God's part, but on our part. We do not pray, and when we do, we pray with weak or double-minded faith. 
And so here we come to the, the motivation for our, our praying, and it's rooted in the goodness of God to his children. Why, why do we pray? How can we feel motivated to pray? Because God is good. The children come boldly to their parents because they trust that they will do what is best for them. The illustration of, of verses 9 through 11 works much like those that are found at the end of chapter 6. If you remember these, we're told that, that if God cares for the birds and if God cares for the flowers, then of course he's going to care for us. And he says here that if you care for your children and you give them good gifts, then of course the Father is going to care for you. What's interesting here is Jesus doesn't, he doesn't hold back in this illustration, does he? Did you notice what he says? Verse 9, which one of you, if his son asks for, I'm sorry, go a little bit further, um, if you then, verse 11, if you then who are evil, <laughs> this isn't even a good parent. This is an evil parent. Well, speaking probably of our depravity as it is, but also just this idea that if, if we who are evil, if we who are not perfect, if we who are not God give good gifts, then of course the Father knows how to give good gifts. Even the worst father in the world longs to bless his children with good things. If his daughter comes asking for a fish to eat, will he give her a snake that's going to kill her? Or if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone instead? Of course not. And if we earthly parents have the wisdom and the ability and the desire to bless our children with good gifts, then of course God's going to do the same. Our Heavenly Father is filled with greater love than we have. And he shows it in his care for us. Our Heavenly Father is filled with greater power than we have. There is, there is nothing that he cannot give us that we ask for. Our Heavenly Father is, is filled with more wisdom than we have. Therefore, he knows what to give and what to withhold, just as any good parent does. Our Father, notice this, our Father only gives good gifts. And so he knows when a gift will bless us and draw our hearts to him. And he also knows when a gift that could be good for another person or at another time will in fact be bad for us. And he doesn't give us those gifts because he only gives good gifts. Do we see evidence of this? I think we could all cite uh, small things in life, experiences of answered prayer, unanswered prayer. But of course, nothing seals the case for God's goodness and his wisdom like the gift of salvation in Jesus. A gift we, in fact, were not seeking or asking for, but a good gift, the greatest gift given by the hand of the Father. And if you haven't heard it enough from this pulpit, let's hear it again. Romans 8.32 tells us that he who spared not his only son, but gave him up for us all, if he did that, then of course he's going to give us everything else that we need. Our Father is in heaven. He knows how to give good gifts to his children. We can trust him. We can fully trust him. Let me offer a few words then on maybe what we are asking and seeking and knocking for. Now, I think in general we could say that, that we can ask for anything and we can seek for anything and we can knock for anything. We can bring all of our needs to our Father. But here in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, what exactly are we asking for? The immediate context tells us that we are asking for discernment. We're asking for the kind of discernment that knows how to judge others fairly, as well as when to speak and when to be silent as we offer wisdom and counsel to people. So that's the immediate context there, verses 1 through 6. 
you can go back a little bit further and you might go into chapter 6, the end there, and we could see that we are to seek first the kingdom of God rather than earthly riches. And so we ask God to free us from the love of money and possessions and from the worry and anxiety over such things. That's what we're asking for. We go back a little bit further in the Sermon on the Mount into chapter 6 again, and the Lord's Prayer comes to mind. And we see that we are to ask first for God's concern, for his name to be hallowed, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, and also for our needs like daily bread and forgiveness and deliverance from evil. We go back a little bit further, the beginning of chapter 6, and we could ask for a humility in our private devotion to Christ, a lack of hypocrisy in our, our giving and our praying and our fasting We go back a little bit further into chapter 5 and we see that we can ask for God's strength as we strive to keep His law, His greater righteousness with a pure heart. And the further we go back, we arrive back at Matthew 5, 17 through 20 and we find that we are asking for, what we're asking for in all these things is we're asking that God would work in us the greater righteousness of the kingdom. We are asking for the kind of heart righteousness, the kind of wholeness of life that walks in the ways of Jesus with all that we are. We're asking that we would act like children, children of God redeemed by Jesus. We're asking that God would make us more and more like children of God. As we ask for these things, we're reminded that we can have no righteousness of any kind apart from the goodness of God shown to us in Christ. We are sinners all. None of us is righteous, not even one. But as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Only through faith in Jesus can we be forgiven and made righteous, and we have to ask for this. But once we are made new through the gospel, notice that we don't simply ask for these things, but we also seek and we knock. Now, I think those words seek and and knock certainly communicate the way that we are to ask our Father for, for our needs and for the righteousness of the kingdom. And we know that only God can empower us to walk in his ways. But I also think that in using those words, we're told that we should seek his kingdom and seek the wisdom to walk in discernment, in love, in holiness, and the like. We are to, to ask for God's kingdom to come, but what else are we supposed to do? We are to seek first his kingdom. We are to strive after it. We ask for God's will to be done. But that doesn't mean that we don't try to do God's will with our lives. The the seeking and the striving may, may look like seeking to understand God's ways more clearly. I think about prayer and, and scripture reading, and so often we separate these two spiritual disciplines. Well, we pray and we study. But prayer and scripture are interrelated spiritual disciplines. They work together. Also, our our private prayer life interacts with our life within the community. They are both a part of being members of God's kingdom. And so, trying to draw this together, as we, we are praying, we're also searching the scriptures and trying to understand God's will. As, as, we seek, as we're seeking the Lord in private prayer, we're also going to others and seeking out and knocking and asking for wise counsel from sisters and brothers in Christ. We are to trust God's power to give us what we need and also trust that he often uses secondary means to accomplish his will in the world. I'm not sure if that's totally clear, so if you have questions, ask me later. But I'm trying to help us see that we ask, but we also pursue. We're seeking after these things too. 
We don't simply ask and then sit back and do nothing, but we're seeking and knocking, and we use the scriptures and we speak to one another. But don't forget that we do this with confidence. Why? Because we know the goodness of our Father. We, we trust him like children asking for their needs and desires. Sinclair Ferguson says of that illustration that, uh, of a snake given for fish and of a stone given for bread, that those are not random items, which should not surprise us. Jesus doesn't just pick random things with no purpose. Rather, he says that they recall the garden and they recall the deception of Satan. To give a snake instead of a fish, he says, would be cynical. And to give a stone rather than bread would be deceptive since they look similar. And so too, Satan's deception of Adam and Eve was cynically dismissive of God's law. Asserting that God was withholding something from Adam and Eve that was good. And Satan was also deceptive, the father of all lies. Now watch this though. The scary thing is that that we might actually come to God in prayer and think that he is worse than we who know how to give good gifts to our children. And in fact, we might actually think that God is no better than the devil. We might come to him and be prayerless because we, we think that he's going to cynically give us something that's going to harm us rather than help us. Is God going to do that? Of course not. He's a loving Heavenly Father, but sometimes we, we don't think that way. Or we think that God's going to deceive us. That's the devilish logic of be careful what you ask for because you might get it. Or if I tell God what I don't want, maybe he's gonna, that's what he's going to give me. Is that a good father? Certainly not. That's the, and that's not the mindset of the child of God. And so Jesus is, encourages us to trust God's goodness and pray like a child. To, to pray for and seek after and beg for the greater righteousness of the kingdom, knowing that, that our good God, our good Father, will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So hopefully, hopefully we've seen that the, the greater righteousness that we're asking for and seeking for, that that's found in, in Matthew 5 through 7. That's what we're asking for. But it's also what we're asking for is simply stated in verse 12 as doing for, to others what we would have them do to us. And here we move from the goodness of the Father to his children to our second point, the goodness of the children of the Father to all people. The goodness of the children of the Father, that's us, if we're redeemed by Christ, to all people. This verse forms a, a bookend to the, the central teaching of the sermon, and the, the other bookend is back in Matthew five seventeen through 20. There's a very clear link in those verses. If you look back at Matthew 5.17, just to see the beauty of this structure, Matthew 5.17, Jesus begins the central teaching there by saying, do not think that I have come to abolish the what? The law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And what's he saying in verse 12? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is what? The law and the prophets. These beautiful bookends of this teaching about the greater righteousness. And so Jesus is clear that he didn't come to abolish the law and prophets, but to fulfill them. And here in chapter 7, verse 12, he says that the command to do to others as you would have them do to you is a summary of the law and the prophets, specifically about how we relate to others, of course. It, this is, as he will talk about later, when he says that the law is summed up in, in loving our neighbor as ourselves. Same idea. 
This summary actually finds its roots in some other Jewish writings and even in some writing outside of the Jewish faith. But in those, it's, it's always stated negatively. They say, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. A good principle. However, Jesus' positive statement takes us further, doesn't it? He takes us into a deeper, greater, all-of-life righteousness. We're not just to abstain from doing evil towards others. We are to actively seek to do good for others. There's a reason that this verse known as the golden rule is so well known all over the world. It must be in part because of how memorable and simple and easy to understand it is. Just think if we are not cynical or uncompassionate and we ask ourselves in a situation, what would I want others to do for me? It is really an almost foolproof way of determining the way of love and of grace as we act. And yet, as much as it can be a foolproof way of determining the way of love and grace, if it's divorced from the gospel, it becomes a foolproof way to fall into self-righteousness and hypocrisy. It becomes actually a pit that's going to lead us into legalism and works-based righteousness again. Because part of what Jesus wants us to see in the Sermon on the Mount is that we cannot keep the law in this way that he's calling us to on our own. Remember, this, this sermon is not the entrance exam into God's family, right? It's a description of what God's children look like and how they act because they have been changed, and that includes loving others. You know, I thought as early as this morning that a great application of this passage would be, just because this verse is such a simple summary, to, to, to post Matthew seven twelve somewhere in your house as a reminder of this summary of all that we are called to do and to be as the children of God. And I think that still could be a good idea. But it's going to be a very bad idea if doing so causes you to isolate this verse and separate it from the Sermon on the Mount and even from the gospel itself and the power of God to do it. It will become a marker in your life of what you feel like you need to do to make God happy. But this is not something that we do to make God happy because we can't do it. Only through Jesus and the power of the Spirit is this kind of love possible. And so we come full circle, don't we? We find that we have to ask for God to give us the ability to walk in this command. We have to seek for it. We say with Augustine, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Lord, command whatever you want and then make me able to do it. I'll do whatever you tell me to do as long as you give me the strength and the ability to do what you ask me to do. And God will do it. So what if we prayed for this? What if in our asking and our seeking and knocking, we were saying, God, help me to do to others what I would have them do to me? What if we prayed that above all? all else. If we asked for and we sought after and we knocked at the door until we were filled with a love like Jesus, a love that was self-sacrificing, a love that that put the interest of others above our own, a love that walked through life not turned inwardly, asking, what can I get? What are my rights that I can protect? What do I want? but instead was just constantly seeking to find ways to do for others what we would want them to do for us. Can you imagine walking through life that way? How would that affect your family? Siblings, how would that affect the way that you interact with your brothers and sisters? How would it affect the way that you interact with your parents, 
Parents, how would that affect the way that you interact with your children? How would it affect the relationships that we have here in church? If we came in here not thinking, what can I get? What do I want? What do I need? But we started saying, how can I serve another person? What do I want and how could I do that for someone else instead of seeking it primarily for myself? Let's pretend we were in a worldwide pandemic and we had that attitude. We didn't fall on one side or the other, whatever that means. I don't even know how are there sides in a pandemic. But what if we just fell on the side of loving and doing for others what we want them to do for us? We looked at every person and we said, you know what I would want them to do for me in the midst of all of the strife that's going around? I'm going to do that for them. What if in this, this the, the unrest and the, the, the way that our African-American brothers and sisters are so disheartened, what if, what if we looked at them and we looked at protesters and we, we tried to, to be in their shoes and we said, what would I want them to do for me if I was them? And then we sought to do that. And then we did the same for public servants at all levels of government. What if in my online interactions with people, I said, what would I want someone to say to me? And then I did that for them. What would I not want someone to say to me? And then I didn't say that to them. In my face-to-face interactions, I thought, would I want someone to give me the benefit of the doubt in this circumstance? We just started to love others. And what if we did for others what someone did for us? And we told them the good news of the gospel. We did what what we would want in that circumstance. The most loving thing in the world. Something that they're not seeking after. And in fact, if you said, hey, what do you want me to do for you that would be loving? They wouldn't say, well, why don't you tell me the gospel? But we know that that's the most loving thing in the world to do for someone. So we did it. We loved others the way that we would want them to love us. We told them the good news about Jesus. What if we did that? You know what would happen? It'd change the world. It it would look like this new kingdom was breaking into the present. That people of God looked like children of God. People that loved others first. Laid down their lives for one another. Even for their enemies. That would be amazing. And it's not going to happen if we try to do it on our own. It's only going to be possible by the power of God asked for and sought after by his children. And if we do, if we ask and we seek and we knock and we say, God, make me someone who's always asking, what would this person want me to do for them? How could I love them? How would I want them to love me? And then we in turn sought to do that to the glory of God. For his praise alone, it would change the world. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, confidently request the goodness of the Father. You have a loving Father who will give you what you are asking for. He only knows how to give good gifts. And if you long to walk in the ways of the Sermon on the Mount, 
and we ask him for that, he will give us the ability to do it. He will strengthen us. Not perfectly, but he will give us the strength to do it. Confidently request the goodness of the Father. And then, as he shows grace towards you, indiscriminately give his goodness to all people. And that will change the world. Let's take a moment of silence, and then I'll pray, and we'll close with the song. Oh, Father, forgive us for making this so complicated. Help us just to rest in you and to ask you to help us and then to love others as we would want to be loved. Thank you for the gift of Matthew seven twelve. Thank you for these words that sum up the law and prophets for us. Lord, we are, we are, um, we are weak and we struggle to know what to do. But Lord, imprint these words on our heart so that we would love others. But also, Lord, as you imprint them on our hearts, help us to, to know that we cannot do it apart from your spirit working through us, apart from the grace that you've shown us in Christ. Lord, may we be people who are saturated in the gospel and love to walk as your children, not because it earns our salvation, but because we've been so radically changed and so radically loved that we can't help but love others. Lord, be with us as we meditate on these words. Be with us as we walk through our days in this coming week. Make us look like children of God by your spirit. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.